Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a brand new series called A New Nation, a study in Genesis 47 to 50. So let's turn in our Bibles as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled The Creation of the People of God. Genesis 47 begins with the words, So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds, and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. So that's the beginning of the last section of the book of Genesis. And those words spoken by a Hebrew to the king of Egypt mark the beginning of the creation of the people of God, the people of Israel. The book of Genesis is a fascinating book. It begins with the creation of the earth, and it ends with the creation of the special people of God. In many ways, the book of Genesis mirrors the entire Bible. The Bible begins with the account of creation and ends with the account of the new creation. The Bible begins with the creation of a man and a woman who are charged with ruling and reigning over all of God's creation, extending the glory of God to everything. And the Bible ends with a new creation and a redeemed people of God being called to rule and reign with Christ over all the works of God's hands, extending the glory of God to the farthest reaches of the creation of God. In other words, the Bible is one story. It is the story of the perfect and glorious God who decided to display his beauty by creating a physical universe that reflects his perfection. It is the story of how God does just that. And by the time the story is finished, the great project of God has reached its completion and awaits the revelation of all God's perfections in every last area of his creation. But since we're talking about God's project to externalize his internal perfections, and since we're talking about God, we might expect that this would be a most amazing story filled with twists and turns in the plot line, a story that by the time it's done leaves us breathless And our only reaction is to proclaim, surely God is far more glorious than we had ever imagined. Now, our book of Genesis is not only the introduction to the story, but it's really more than that. The book of Genesis forms the foundation for the story. And without knowing Genesis well, the entire Bible is just a collection of interesting stories, stories that might even be faith-building, but stories that will not seem to be woven into an entire picture. On more than one occasion, I have taught either in a Sunday school class or in some other setting the storyline of the whole Bible. And the common response that I've heard is this. I've never been able to see the Bible as one story, but I now do. You know, in a way, a thorough study of Genesis, when we do it well, opens our eyes to see the story of the whole Bible. Let's see if we can plot out the story of Genesis. In essence, it really is an easy book to outline. It's outlined into two sections. Chapters 1 to 11 is from the creation to Abraham, and section 2 is from Abraham to the creation of the nation of Israel. So that's easy enough, but that doesn't yet get at how this book is a foundation for the drama of the ultimate meaning of everything. So let's start again, and I'm going to outline the book a second time. The book of Genesis contains at least six sections of drama, which, roughly speaking, form the foundation of the Bible. Section one is the account of creation, takes up chapters one and two. In it, we find a perfect being, God, who creates a world with no more effort than the word of his mouth. 
He simply speaks and it comes into being. In the first two chapters, we have already learned a number of vital lessons that are foundational for the entire Bible. You know, lesson number one can't be overstated. There's a vast difference between God and everything else. God is uncreated and eternal. Everything else is created and depends on the Creator for its existence. You know, it's from the first two chapters of Genesis that we also learn monotheism, that there is but one God. From it, we also learn the meaning of the creation. Because God calls all things good, we learn that creation, well, it's not bad, but it's made to reflect something of the greatness of God. There are other foundational lessons from the first two chapters of Genesis. We learn that we, human beings, are different from all other things that God has created. We are uniquely created in the image of God. Now, of course, we're still created and He is uncreated. We're still temporal while He is eternal. And as the Bible story continues to play out, we learn that there are many other ways in which we and God are fundamentally different. He is spirit. We're flesh. God, we learn, is unchangeable. God is omnipresent. God does not have spatial dimensions as we have. I mean, I could go on and on. But in other ways, we're remarkably similar. God is righteous, and we're given an inner sense that there are some things that are right and other things that are always wrong. God has knowledge and wisdom, and we seek to know and to understand the nature, well, of everything. I could go on and on again. But in the first two chapters of Genesis, we learn who we are, and we learn the purpose of our lives. We've been created to be image bearers of God and therefore to subdue all creation, bringing it in harmony with the purposes of the God in whose image we are. Now, section two in Genesis really has only one chapter. And if you aren't paying attention as you read this one chapter, well, I'll promise you that nothing else in the entire Bible will make sense because chapter 3 is the chapter that explains that the human race is fallen from grace and that now, even while we're still in the image of God, we've lost our purpose in living and have become subject to the displeasure of the Creator, and now we're subject to death. Section 2 in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 24, when understood, is the prism through which all human history can now be understood. We've been driven from paradise. We no longer hear the voice of God. We are now, rather than working to bring God's glory to all of his creation, are seeking to become gods in our own right. But chapter 3 also contains seeds of hope. It's a theme that forms the basis for the story of redemption. Genesis 3 verse 15 promises that a redeemer will come. He will bruise the head of the serpent, the one who deceived our first parents. Eventually, this promise would lead to the story of Jesus who, when he died on the cross, did what Colossians 2.15 tells us, that he disarmed the demonic rulers and authorities and subjected them to open shame and triumphed over them by his salvation of offering himself up on the cross. And furthermore, look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's the story of Genesis 3. But that also sets up the story of our salvation. Romans 5.18 says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So that's Jesus. He is the new Adam. 
He, by his obedience to the Father, created a people for God, the the very promise that we found in the first two chapters of Genesis. And so we've already seen two sections in Genesis. First, the story of creation, which includes the identity of God and the purpose for man. And then the second section, the fall from grace, the loss of purpose, and the story of a savior. But how will God save a group of fallen human beings? So we come now to section number three, which is covered in Genesis 4 to 11. Here we see the story of conflict. We see a line of people who want to return to God, but they're the minority. And then we see the majority, people who really want to be gods in their own right, who want to claim the earth for their purposes rather than as an extension of the Creator's glory. Eventually, we're going to see that the rebels win and effectively extinguish those who seek God's glory so that in the whole world, there is only one godly family left and the whole thing comes to an end with a universal flood and the statement that under no circumstances will the ungodly succeed in dethroning God nor in grasping the world from his hands. So what's the solution? Genesis 6-5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Clearly, if God was going to create a people for himself who would rule on his behalf and as an extension of his glory, something out of the ordinary, something amazing would have to be accomplished. And with that, we come to section number four, which, which is the story of Abraham that covers chapters 12 to 25. The story begins in a dramatic fashion, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So that's God's plan. He will start with one man, the man he has chosen, and he will build him into a nation and give him a land, and he will project out from there, blessing the earth and bringing an invitation to the earth. Recover your lost identity in this one man and in his family. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. You know, these difficult times, we're so grateful for those who stand with us, the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. You've ensured that in the midst of distressing days, trustworthy, relevant, and accessible Bible teaching continues to be offered every day. We're so grateful for your continued prayers and partnership. The month of June is one of the more critical financial months of the year for the ministries of Back to the Bible. And we know there are many because of the present difficult times who are unable to give. But if you are able, your gift to help meet this important fiscal year-end goal by June 30th would be so appreciated. And remember, the ministry has been blessed this month to receive a $95,000 match pledge. So for every dollar you give, that gift is doubled up to $95,000. To offer a gift this month, call us, would you, at 1-800-663-2425 or give securely online at backtothebible.ca. Section 5 in Genesis really covers chapters 26 through to chapter 46. I know if you know the book of Genesis, you might find this to be a rather strange division. 
You know, that's not how one normally outlines Genesis. But I think it's a good outline in terms of the actual storyline of Genesis. It's a very natural unit. It takes us from the death of Abraham until the time the family of Abraham leaves the land of promise and enters into the land of Egypt. And those of you who have studied these chapters carefully might view this as the time when it seemed that the wheels fell off of God's plan, the plan to create a people for himself who will rule his creation for the glory of God. Yep, Abraham was not perfect, but he remained faithful. His son Isaac seems also, for the most part, to have remained faithful, but Isaac is not the kind of leader that his father was. And Isaac's two sons are hardly examples of faithfulness at all. One is impulsive and strong, caring nothing for the promise of Abraham, and the other is quite intelligent but manipulative, who cares only for the blessing of Abraham if there's some way he can make a a gain financially out of that. And eventually Jacob, who becomes the inheritor of the Abrahamic blessing, has 12 sons, and his family is a royal mess. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. The brothers that remain seem to be gradually assimilating into the wider Canaanite culture, and the one true God of Abraham is all but forgotten. But amazingly, the one brother who started as a slave has not forgotten his creator, and God has blessed him in the land of his slavery. And then comes the time of famine in which the family of Abraham is close to dying of hunger. They go to Egypt to buy food, and Joseph, the brother that has been sold, becomes the savior of the family of Abraham. And anyone reading the book of Genesis against the the full light of the entire Bible, you know, recognizes that Joseph is a forerunner of Jesus. I know Joseph, unlike Jesus, was not sinless, but whatever Joseph's sins were, they, they were never the sins of turning from his creator like that of his brothers. So let me list some of the similarities between Joseph and Jesus. Both Joseph and Jesus were chosen by God. Both Joseph and Jesus were rejected by their own people. Both Joseph and Jesus humbled themselves to provide redemption for their people. In the case of Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming a man and and even went so far as humbling himself to death on the cross. That became the source of our salvation. Now, obviously, Joseph didn't die on a cross for the sake of his brothers. For one, as I have said, he wasn't sinless. And second, Joseph didn't eternally exist. In that sense, of course, there's a vast difference between Jesus and Joseph. But consider that Joseph had become the prime minister in Egypt and as such could surely have condemned his his wicked brothers to death. But instead, he humbles himself and becomes one of them. He provides food for them and then opens the door for his brothers to become the people they were meant to be. That's what Jesus has done for us. We deserve death for we all rebelled in Adam and we've abandoned the purpose for which we were created. The greater ruler of the land would have been justified in condemning us. Instead, he humbled himself and became one of us. And what's more, he made us into the people of God. You see, it was always God's plan that the world he created to showcase his glory would be a world in which men and women created in his image would rule over his creation on his behalf. And that's the story of the creation of the church. But in Genesis, that story is still a long way ahead. Instead, God is slowly forming a special people unto himself through whom the Messiah and the Savior of the world would eventually come. But as we have seen, 
That story seems to have fallen into ruins because of the assimilation of the chosen people into the wider culture of Canaan. And that's where our final sixth section of Genesis comes in. Genesis 47 begins with the family of Abraham, or at least the family of Abraham's grandson Jacob, coming to Egypt. The famine is wiping out Canaan, and it's time for Jacob's family to flee. Joseph, his son, the man who has become the prime minister in Egypt under the authority of Pharaoh alone, has moved the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Egypt, all thoughts of assimilation will be over. Why? Well, for one, consider Genesis 43, verse 32. It says, The Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Or consider Genesis 46, 34. Joseph tells his family, You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So the reality was God designed the famine in order to end the assimilation of the people into Canaan. In Egypt, the family of Israel would be forced to become a unique and distinct people unto God. The Egypt experience was necessary for the plan of God to come into fruition. That's why the beginning of Genesis 47, in which Joseph goes to Pharaoh and declares that his family has now settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen, should cause the astute Bible reader to sit up. Ha <laughs> ha! So this is how God molds a people unto himself. And with that, the Genesis account moves from the unique circumstances of the people of God to the wider narrative of the regional famine. Joseph is not only the savior of his family, he's also called upon by God to save countless lives in that region. His management of the famine reminds us that God is concerned with the well-being of all people. Jesus spoke about that when he said that, that God causes the rain to fall on both the just and on the unjust. God does provide a measure of mercy for everyone. Joseph's concerns for Egypt and the proper distribution of food reminds all of God's people that we're called upon to show love to all mankind. Christian missions, even while it always calls on men and women to be reconciled to God and become a part of the family of God, never stops just there. There's a divine mandate to feed the poor, to help the poor find justice, to provide people with education and a means of making a living that is sustainable. Christian missions builds hospitals and looks to speak to culture to bring about justice. That's why William Carey, the missionary to India, is credited with bringing to an end the practice of seti, that is the burning of widows along with the dead bodies of their husbands. That's why William Wilberforce, is a member of the British House of Commons, worked tirelessly to end the practice of the slave trade in England. And that's why in our day, Christians need to work tirelessly to end the practice of abortion in our day. That is, the killing of children in their mother's womb, along with the euthanizing of our elderly. Christian mission, if it can, seeks also to care and feed and educate and work for justice. Joseph's life as the savior of his people is also a life of one who is deeply concerned for the plight of the starving multitudes in his region. And with that, the Genesis text focusing again on the special people of God, now fixes its gaze firmly on the 12 sons of Israel, those that will become the 12 tribes of the people of God. 
Genesis 49 opens with a dying Jacob who gathers his 12 sons to his deathbed. His last words will be words of both blessing and of curses on his 12 sons. In a way, this chapter, which is often being called the chapter of blessing, really is a chapter of mixed blessing. But this is a chapter of the future of the people of Israel, both their blessings and their cursings. It's a chapter which tells us that the future will be a mixed bag filled with great disappointment and failure, but also a future of undying hope. God will not abandon his people, and in the end, he will bring his Savior into the world, for his people are his sacred possession. When we come to the end of Genesis, there's one outstanding matter yet to be settled. After Jacob dies or Israel dies, what then will happen between Joseph and his brothers? Is the forgiveness that Joseph offered them lasting and real, or will he remember the profound evil they've done against him? Again, this matter reminds us of the greater Joseph, who is Jesus. What if after all is said and done, Jesus were to remember our sins? How assured are we that forgiveness and reconciliation and peace with God is guaranteed? Joseph's answer to his brothers is instructive. You intended it for evil, he says, for he never whitewashed over his brother's sins. But God intended it for good. That is, reconciliation is only possible when it keeps in mind the wider intentions of God. It was always God's intention to create a people unto himself who were forgiven of their sins and who would rule and reign with Christ. And all of that is the storyline which opens up to us in the book of Genesis. This is foundational for everything that God has to say to us. John, I know you feel strongly about making sure when we study scripture, for instance, Genesis, that we understand the book in its entirety. And, and if we don't, we can miss out on so much that it has to reveal. You know, uh, Ben, as you ask that question, I, I want to make sure I preface what I'm about to say by saying I'm not opposed to scripture memorization. In fact, I encourage it. But some of the things that we might get wrong in scripture memorization is that we think of the Bible as a series of verses rather than as the context of a whole story, and that if we don't get the whole story, we won't understand the individual parts either. So understanding all of Genesis uh, helps us to understand the details. I mean, that's just so central. So I was going to say the more that we can keep reading and rereading the text so that we understand context, the more we're going to understand every individual verse and passage we read. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A New Nation, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Sarah wrote, Dr. Neufeld brings scripture to life with depth, practicality, challenge, and hope. The world has changed. Technology has made everything closer. Ministries have changed, and yet Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teaching. You do a marvelous work, and I look forward to hearing you every day. Well, messages like this help us feel we're hitting the mark. And with God's blessing, people of every age and background are being impacted through faithful Bible teaching. Our special thanks to all those who listen and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. So please continue to stand with us with your prayers and gifts, and Back to the Bible Canada will continue to do all it can to impact lives with the gospel. You can join us in this effort with your financial support 
by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or by visiting backtothebible.ca.